God has actually ordained the government to be a terror to evildoers. They're to carry the sword to punish people that are evildoers. So in this case, and this is really, really important that we understand, we're talking about this disagreement and civil disputes amongst this specific body within the church, not talking about criminal cases, nor are we saying that believers can't ever uh, ever go to court with an issue uh, like for example like if you're ripped off a great amount of money from a company they say they're doing something or maybe they do it they do it wrong cause a whole lot of issues and problems and it's like you know all this money that you're out because of their negligence or because of their fault and then they claim well after all i'm a believer you can't sue me well that's not the context right We're, th this context here is is specifically in the body of christ he's saying you guys can't deal with these disputes so you're taking it to the public arena you're taking it to the public arena says you've You've already lost. You're taking it to the unrighteous, unrighteous people, the people that are not part of the kingdom of God, but he's saying you are part of the kingdom of God. So this is our context here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Let's dive into it. And it'd be good if I went to Corinthians instead of Colossians. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, here we go. He says this, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust? And not before the saints, not, not before people that know the Lord within your church. He says, do you not know? Like, Don't you know the saints? They're going to judge the world. And if the world should be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Verse 3, he says, know ye not that we shall judge angels? Now, honestly, I don't know what that means exactly. But what we are, the point he's making though, in saying that believer, you're going to judge the world. He's saying, you're going to judge angels. How much more the things that pertain to this life? What he's referring to is that as believers, we're part of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is more than just this life here and now. Now this life here and now is important. Right, and, and that's also an important fact to know. As believers, what we do and how we live matters a great deal. It's tempting sometimes to have just this escapist mentality that nothing matters here in this life because after all, that God's kingdom is coming. Well, yes, we know that things as they are now, they're not how they will always be. But as believers, that God has us here to make an impact upon the culture in which we live. But we know there's another day coming. And, and, and we know from other scripture that as believers, we are going to have a part in judging or in ruling. We're going to have responsibilities in the kingdom that's yet to come. Now we could go down a big rabbit hole here of all the implications of that. But, but I hope that that is... I hope that that is an encouraging thing to us to recognize and to understand. We're part of, of the kingdom of God. And yes, that includes here and now, but, but also in what's to come. And the point Paul's making is this. You're going to be a part of that in judging and having responsibility 
in those things and even judging angels. And, and, and there's a couple different schools of thought there, whether it's like judgment of, of fallen angels or, or judging in, 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 in the eternal kingdom that's yet to come, uh, what that exactly means. But, but I think really the, the takeaway is that we're going to have responsibility and judgment in the kingdom that's yet to come. And he's saying, how can you not handle these small matters now? within the church. Is there not? He says, uh, verse number four, if you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least, who are least esteemed in the church. Like, well, why are you taking them to, to, to the outside realm of unbelievers in these civil cases within your church, the matters with the church? Why can't you guys work this out? Verse five, like this is pretty clear, bold language. He says, I speak this to your shame. So he's saying, how dare you? Now he's saying, shame on you. Is there not a wise man among you? No, not one that should be able to judge between his brethren. He said, isn't there someone within your body that you can go to? You guys can't work this out. And we know that the example, the pattern Jesus gives, if there's a fault, if there's an issue between you and someone, go to them first, right? You try to work that out with them. Don't bring it to the court or the court of public opinion and try to get a bunch of people involved. If you haven't gone to them, go to them. And then if they don't hear you, then, then you bring two or three witnesses. Then you bring other, in other words, you get some more people involved, not people that don't need to be involved, but people that are going to help resolve it. And it seems like that's what he's alluding to here when he's saying, isn't there a wise person among you? He's saying, can't you appeal to someone within your body to be able to work this out? Instead, they're taking, it to, they're taking it to the public arena. And people that are unrighteous, people that aren't even part of the church, are, are making judgments on, on matters within the church. He's like, this is a shame. This is a shame. He says, brothers going to law with brother, and they're doing it before unbelievers. Now, therefore, there's utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take the wrong? Now, now that's where it gets tough. That's where it gets tough. Because he's saying it would be better to just take one for the team. Now again, it's, un it's really, really important that we understand this certain context. Because it's not, not saying that you become an enabler. It's not saying you allow someone maybe who's habitually just an evil, narcissistic person. Allow them to continue sinning against you. Um, it's not saying you allow crime to happen and don't, don't do anything about it. But you say, if, if you've been offended by a brother, if, if, if you think you've been wronged in the situation within the, within the church, within the body with a brother or sister in Christ, and, and maybe you've tried to go to them, maybe you've even brought it before other people, and, or, or maybe you have brought it before other people, and they've rendered a, a verdict, and you didn't like it, you still feel like you've been cheated? He said, wouldn't it be better to just take the wrong? Man, that's tough. That's tough. Just allow your, and, and, and again, we see this though, man, what a, what a picture that this is of, of Christ's forgiveness to us, who the only innocent one, the only one without sin, yet took our fault. He says, no, you do wrong and defraud that of your brother. Or sorry, verse seven, now therefore there's utterly a fault among you. In other words, he's saying, you've already lost. 
You've already lost. Yeah, maybe they render the verdict and you, you win, but he's like, you've lost. If you've not been able to handle this within your local body with believers, you've taken it to outside to the unbelieving judges, the unbelieving court system, people that don't know the Lord, say, man, it, there's a fault. In other words, you, you've already lost. You've already lost. Why wouldn't you rather take the wrong? Why would you rather not suffer yourselves to be defrauded or to be sinned against, to be withheld something that you feel is yours? And that's a tough pill to swallow, to take that offense. Again, within this context of there's a dispute with, with another brother or sister in Christ and you feel like it's not fair, wouldn't it be better instead of severing that relationship with your brother, severing that relationship with your church or taking it before unbelievers and allowing, allowing it to be a bad testimony, wouldn't it be better to just take the fault and take the wrong? Verse number nine, he says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, this context, he's saying, you're part of the kingdom of God. You're part of the kingdom of God. You have a role, a great role within this kingdom of God. But he says, don't you know that the unrighteous, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And now we list these sins and these sins that he's about to list. These are things that were okay in Corinth. It was acceptable in Corinth. He says, don't be deceived though. Fornicators. Now again, back to last week. I know this is uncomfortable, but it's important. It's in the word of God. Fornicators. That's any sexual sin. And sexual sin is defined and described in the word of God as, as sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And that, again, I understand, like, oh, it's not really that popular, but that is, in, 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 well, like we talked about last week as well, though. I mean, God doesn't set these things to be a burden and to be cruel and to not let people have fun. No, it's he's protecting something that's far greater protecting something far greater something that is pleasurable and it has meaning it has meaning and safety within a committed relationship he's saying fornicators uh idolaters adulterers nor effeminate or abusers of themselves with mankind this is talking about homosexuality People try to twist it and change it and say that, that you know, it's, it's only in the context of, of idol worship in the temple. They try to do that with this. They try to do it with Romans 1. Paul's referring to the holiness code in Leviticus, right, where it's clear. He says, like, that, that's not acceptable to God. He's like, this is, this is actually those that identify. Doesn't, doesn't mean Christians can't ever struggle with these sins. He's saying those that identify in these sins, that are continually practicing these sins, it's a description of those that aren't part of the kingdom of God. He says, nor thieves, or covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners. He says, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So the unrighteous, again, these are all things acceptable at this time in Corinth. In fact, maybe you know this from history, but... I think it's like 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals or they were bisexual. That was just a common thing and practice. And hey, it's okay. Paul's saying, well, not according to God though. It's not. 
not according to God, it's not. That, that actually you're, you're part of a different kingdom. That the people that are partaking in these things and identifying in these sins, this is describing people who are not part of the kingdom of God. But he says this, he doesn't stop there. He says, and that's what you were. He said, such were some of you. Not that's such are some of you. He says, that's what you were. That's what you were before you knew the Lord, before your faith in Jesus Christ, because by faith in Christ, now you are what? You are washed. You are sanctified. You are made holy. You are justified. You have a righteous standing before God in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God. And this is so beautiful. It's so beautiful because he's saying, look, you were this. Don't be arrogant and proud. This is what you were, but not anymore. It's what you were. It's not who you are. You have a new identity. And as I said, look, I'm not saying that as Christians, we can never struggle with any of these sins. But what I'm saying is that when we truly recognize what happens at salvation, what the spirit of God does in us is that, that, that Jesus doesn't save us to continue in that sin. He transforms us out of that sin. He transforms us out of that sin. That no longer identifies us as believers. And what a beautiful picture that this is. And it shouldn't make us arrogant. It should make us humble that we have experienced the grace of God. And that maybe as a believer, some of these sins listed, it's like, man, I still struggle with some of these things. But the difference is this, that Christ is transforming you out of that sin. You're not identifying in that sin any longer. So as we look at that, and actually, that's where we'll stop. We're going to look at a few applications. We'll look at a few applications in conclusion. First of all, we see this. We see that when we handle disputes and disagreements biblically, more justice is actually served. Now, that's not to contradict. Sometimes when, you know, you feel like you've been wronged, take the wrong. Take the wrong, again, within this context of a dispute or disagreement with another brother. But, but see, what would happen is many times this, that, that, that within the court system in Corinth and in places like Athens, the people that were rich and affluent, it went in their favor. And many times the poor or the immigrants, the minorities, they would be discriminated against. But yet when we handle it biblically, we see that that better justice was actually served. That better justice was actually served. And, and, and that's what he's saying. Like, look, bring this to people that are wise within the local, the local body. Remember, back a couple chapters ago, Paul's saying, look, you, the problem is that you're operating in the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of man, but in all reality, it, it's foolishness. He's saying that the unbelieving world thinks that we're foolish or really looks at the, the worldview of a believer and doesn't see any value in it. He's like, but, but you have the spirit of God in you. The spirit of God that's, that's, that's showing you these things, that's showing you the value of these things. But they were operating many times in their own wisdom. But we see when we handle disputes and disagreements biblically, more justice is served. Secondly, when we handle disputes and disagreements biblically, it's a good testimony for Christ. Again, Christianity was being mocked here. 
in the public arena because Christians couldn't get along. Not, not crimes, not things that needed to be brought you know, before the, the government that God ordained and God allowed to be set up there, but just disputes, just disagreements. And the problem was it was a mockery to God. It was a mockery to Christianity. And really the same thing could be said today in our context. Like, again, maybe you're not going to like actually, you know, take someone to court and sue them, but maybe the court of public opinion. That can be a bad testimony for Christ. Like, oh man, this Christian, they did this and they wronged me and they hurt me. And again, we're not talking about sweeping sin under the rug or covering up sin. But when it's just a dispute, when there's a disagreement, an argument, not, the whole world doesn't need to know about it. The whole world doesn't need to know about it. Handle it biblically. Why? When we handle it biblically, it's a good testimony for Christ. And then thirdly, we see that when we allow ourselves to be wronged in these cases, it's a picture of Christ's forgiveness. So Paul says, look, allow your, why, not just allow, why not take one for the team? Why not allow yourself to be wronged? And that takes great humility. It takes great humility when we think and we're convinced we're right, but maybe there's times when we just give up our rights in this context, right? I'm not talking about, you know, the, the context of our, our freedoms. Um, there's a specific context here. But giving up what we feel is a right we have and another brother or sister has offended me or hurt me and it's not fair. And Paul's saying, wouldn't it be better to just be wronged? Wouldn't it be better just to extend that forgiveness? And, and maybe that's like striking a chord with, with some of us. Because maybe there's people, another brother or sister in Christ that you feel is, has wronged you and, and, and maybe you've approached them, maybe you haven't. But maybe you've tried to work it out. It doesn't seem like it's worked. And, and maybe that bitterness is eating you up and maybe God's just speaking to you about extending forgiveness, even if they don't apologize, even if they don't admit they're wrong. Maybe they've even convinced other people that they're not wrong and you feel like, man, like it hasn't, the, the, the verdict hasn't come in my favor even though I know I'm right. And Paul's saying, well, wouldn't it be better instead of severing that relation, wouldn't it be better for the testimony of Christ if you just take that wrong in, a, in, in offense? Again, that's a tough pill to swallow. Forgiveness is a tough thing. Just giving up what we feel is our right to prefer someone, like, that, and that goes against what we want to do. But he says, wouldn't you rather take the wrong? Why not, why not just take the wrong wouldn't you rather yourself to be defrauded? Wouldn't you rather yourself to, to be held, something held back that you feel you deserve? Because he's saying, look, when you go before the unrighteous, the unbelievers with this, you've already lost. Maybe the verdict comes in your favor, but you have already lost. But when we allow ourselves to be wrong, it's a picture of Christ's forgiveness. Then we see this beautiful truth in verses 9 through 11. We see that Jesus doesn't affirm us in our sin. He transforms us out of our sin. He doesn't affirm us in our sin. He transforms us out of our sin. And again, here's where we have just a major clash of worldviews today in our culture. Because, again, kind of back to what we talked about, some of the principles last week. That truly loving someone and caring for someone is sometimes coming alongside of them and pointing out the truth that Christ has saved us from this sin, not saved us to continue 
in this sin. He saves us from it. He transforms us out of it. And the thing is today, like for each and every one of us that know the Lord as our Savior, who have experienced the grace of God in our lives, man, we recognize this. We're being transformed. Yes, we are justified. We have a righteous standing before God and we're being transformed by the power of Christ, by the Spirit of God in us. Again, he's different, Paul's differentiating here between those who are not part of the kingdom of God and those who are, those who are part of the kingdom of God. Maybe you're here today, you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, and please know this. Maybe you're watching online, and, 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 and please know, know this truth. We are not presenting a message saying you need to stop this list of sins or any list of sins and that that's your biggest issue. No, it's turn to Christ. Turn to faith in Christ. And when you turn by faith from your sin to Christ, what you're going to find is he's going to transform your life. He's going to change your desires. You'll never stop sinning. These sins or any other sins, you'll never stop sinning without a new nature. Without a new nature. We need a new nature. We need by faith to trust in Christ. To call upon him as our Lord and Savior. And then the spirit of God transforms us. He transforms us. He transforms how we think. How we live. Every aspect of our life. And it's an ongoing process in our life. But that's the power of the gospel. Maybe you're here. You are a believer. But you're burdened with tremendous guilt. Tremendous guilt of things that you've done in your past. It, but this passage is so beautiful because Paul's listing all of these sins and, and, and pretty gross sins, right? Like, and he's saying, look, that, that's what some of you were. Can you just picture it there at the, the church of Corinth as they gather together and as they sit at the table and have communion in the Lord's table together. And, and, and it was filled with people, Paul saying like, yes, all of those sins, that's who you were. That's what used to define you, but that is no longer who you are. That is what you were. That is not who you are. And remember that. No matter what sin in the past, no matter what you've done, no matter how horrible you think that it is, and it is horrible, and that's why we need a Savior. But that's who you were. That's who you were. But now, he says, you're washed. You are sanctified. You are made holy, not because of our goodness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. He says, you're justified. You have a righteous standing before God. And he says, you have been transformed. That's who you were. Maybe you're here, you're a believer. Maybe you're still struggling in sin. And may I just remind you, lovingly remind you, that you have been saved not to continue in that sin and not, not for, for other believers to affirm and encourage you to keep sinning. We have been transformed out of that. We are being transformed out of those things. And that's important for us to know. Important for us too be reminded of.